good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to you all. Uh, and if you're a visitor or a guest with us, uh, my name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here. And uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be able to meet with you this morning. Now, I, I just have to say off the bat, though, I am sick. So if I end up coughing or needing to blow my nose, that's, you know, I'm sorry ahead of time. Also, this is half coffee and half neocitron. Um, and on that same note, that's my only joke for today. That's all I got. When you're prepping sermons and you're sick, you're just not funny. It's just the way it is. So, uh, but the one thing you will notice, too, is in your handout, uh, I encourage you to follow along if you like to do that and want to scribble extra notes. Um, also, there's reflection questions on here, whether that's in your life group or personally. Um, yet, you will notice that the numbering also is not so hot. Um, I will, I will uh, take full credit for my... Um, yeah, the numbers are all wrong. So <laughs> if you're the kind of person who's pedantic and that will drive you crazy, at least you know ahead of time, uh, the, the numbering will not make sense. So what's on the screen probably will because Bruce fixed it for me this morning. Have you ever noticed when our American neighbors to the south sing their national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, when in that song do people begin to get very excited? Think about it. Pay attention. Next time you go watch a ball game or something, listen for it. The land of the free. Then what happens? Yeah, in the first service, people actually started cheering. It was amazing. Uh, You guys are just so much more sophisticated. I know that's what it is, right? Yeah, just like, yes, they begin to cheer loudly. So they get very excited because of that word, free. Freedom is perhaps the most commonly shared value in our current culture. Uh, It could even talk about a fierce sense of individual autonomy, which is just a fancy way of saying, I do what I want. I'm the boss of me, and nobody ain't going to tell me what to do. And, And I would argue that while Canada has a very different national history, Um, we also share this very high value on freedom. Now, for some people, they they struggle when it comes to the whole God question with things like, I mean, they've experienced so much pain in their lives, and they wonder about, you know, could, could God really be loving if I had to go through that? So for some people, that's, that's a challenge, and, it, and it's a real one. Or for others, it's the miracles. I mean, the reality is that that the whole Christian idea is based on the supernatural, on the miraculous, that that Jesus, God's son, actually becomes a human being, born of the Virgin Mary, that he dies and somehow is actually paying for the sins of humanity in his own body on the cross, and then is raised again. So for some people, it's like the whole heart of the Christian faith seems unbelievable because of the miracles. Or for others, it's it's the question of like, how can Christians claim that, that Jesus is the way to God, the only way. Uh, If those are your questions, um, I would encourage you to check out the first four messages online. And uh, for a lot of people, those are the kind of, you might say, those are the things that... um, that are like hang-ups when, when people are considering the Christian faith. And those are they're good questions. Those are ones that Christianity has to have an answer for if it's going to be valid. And so you can check out the first four messages online. But for many others, maybe those aren't their main issues. Maybe this one is. The big objection to Christianity isn't that it doesn't make sense of those issues. It's that I alone should be able to decide what is right or wrong for me on my own terms. 
Um, Pastor and author Tim Keller, he puts the question like this. Some people argue that Christianity, with its rules and exclusive truth claims, is repressive, meaning it's, it's like it's sucking the life out of or diminishing our sense of, like, holding us down, okay? It's repressive both to individuals and communities because it divides communities rather than unites them and because it diminishes our humanity by robbing us of our freedom to determine our own path. You know what? Christianity, when it's misapplied, absolutely can do that. And often it has been misapplied. When it's misapplied, it can be repressive. In fact, anyone from any worldview who believes that they have the truth about life, well, that belief can can lead you to feeling superior to those who don't agree with you. And that people often feel justified at that moment to begin to condemn others and judge them rather than seeking their benefit. People who believe they have the truth can even feel justified in pursuing their agenda, even if it includes violence. Um, Stalin's Russia is a good example of that, and that's from like an atheist uh, example. Christianity, when it is misapplied, people might feel justified in being rude. I see that all the time. Unkind, judgmental, and yes, at times in history, even violent. So I think that one of the reasons why in our late modern culture, we have wanted to say that all truth claims are power plays, you know, like a way to push forward an agenda. Well, I think we we often say that because truth claims are many times used as power plays. But then we have the question, like, are all truth claims power plays? The short answer is no. See, it all depends on what the claim itself is and what kind of behavior living that truth claim out will lead to. I'll come back to this point later because it's really important. Uh, But to be clear from the outset, Christianity does make truth claims. Claims about spiritual reality, about God, and about what it means to live life in a way that God intended. So I can understand if, if you're checking out Christianity, and this whole, and that this is the thing that makes you nervous. If your response is maybe initially something like, I'm not sure I want to sign up to follow Jesus, that looks like it'll take away my freedom, my ability to decide about life on my own terms. If that's maybe how you feel, I can understand. But I hope that you can hear what I'm going to say next. See, I'm going to, I'm going to make the case that Christianity, when it's lived out as it's intended to be, it should lead believers in Jesus to be incredibly humble and generous and loving in serving our whole community, even benefiting people who really disagree with Christianity. So rather than sucking life out of people and communities, I'm going to argue that it actually breathes life into people, into people in such a way that it creates a community of the church who can be life-giving to the rest of the world around us. And I want to suggest, this is the big claim, that it is only in following Jesus that we become really free. I know, that's a big claim. Uh, And I know it's often at this point, this is the place where people say, boy, I think that's my major hesitation with Christian faith. Why? Because here's where it gets real. If this whole Jesus thing is legit, then following him will change how I live. 
where my priorities lie, what I do with my time and energy and money, how I treat other people around me. It'll even challenge and reshape how I think about like everything, the world, God, sex, work, the whole thing. So the question comes down to this, will following Jesus kill my freedom? We need to begin by asking this question, what is real freedom, really? So as I mentioned, the, the, the commonly shared uh, value of our late modern Western culture says that each person should be able to decide for him or herself what is right and wrong so long as their actions don't harm anyone else. Freedom in this view is a freedom from restrictions. It means basically no limits. But let's look at that idea more carefully. First, we need to see that the idea of like absolute freedom, like having no limits in life, no one actually believes that, not in practical sense to live it out. See, many people believe that everyone should be free to decide what's right or wrong for him or herself, but then we need to ask this question. Like, if I were to ask you, are there, are there people who are doing things right now somewhere in the world that you think should be stopped? Inevitably, I would say everybody's going to answer, yes, of course there is. And they're going to point to things like racism, or sexism, or exploitation of the poor, or child prostitution, or genocide? So my question is this. If that's true, if every person's gonna say, yes, there's things that should be stopped, isn't that telling us that we all believe that there are rules that everyone should be following? <laughs> that there are things that are simply true, regardless of how you feel or think about them, that that should apply to everyone else. And so, yes, actually, we do believe that. Uh, in fact, in, um, at our young adults, we were discussing this a couple weeks ago, and, and one of our young adults said, well, think of the game of soccer. Like, if you didn't have boundary lines and rules about how to play the game, it wouldn't be fun at all. I mean, you'd have people, like, picking up the ball with their hands or, like, drop-kicking others. This isn't MMA. Um, and so the game is only fun because it has limits and boundaries. And everyone agrees ahead of time to play by those rules. And then you're released to actually enjoy the game for what it is. The young man, by the way, who mentioned that is Jacob Harder. He's on staff with us here, but he's also a soccer referee. So he knows a thing or two about the game and what makes it fun. Practically speaking, then, our first idea is just that we, all of us, believe that there must be some morals, some rules that apply to all people. That's how life works best. So the idea that says, man, you get to define your own meaning, right and wrong for you, it sounds really free. But then we just begin to ask questions like this. Why not be a racist? Like, who says that's wrong? If you get to define right for you, then why not look down on others who are different than you? Is there any reason why you wouldn't do that? Or we think that the limit is, well, so, so as long as you're not hurting others, okay. But if there is no measure to what constitutes harm, then maybe what I think is totally justifiable, you think is actually very harmful. I think about the example of, um, of, of pornography, okay? One person might think, well, if you're consuming pornography on your own in private, you're not hurting anybody else. That's what a lot of people would think about that issue. I, on the other hand, would argue actually it's doing a whole lot of harm. It's harming, I mean, it's creating a system where women are devalued and dehumanized, where they're looked at as an object that can just be 
used and discarded, and that's actually going to be influencing a whole society of men to think a certain way about women. I actually think it's terribly harmful, okay? You see how even defining harm, you, you come back, it always circles back to that question of who says? Where's the lines? That's where the God question comes in. The Christian answer is that all people are made in the image of God and therefore everyone must be treated with the utmost of respect and dignity. In fact, it was Gregory of Nyssa, he was a pastor and theologian in the area of uh, of Turkey called Cappadocia. In the fourth century, he's the first person that we know of that explicitly argued that slavery is just wrong. At that point in history, uh, the culture around him just saw slavery as kind of like a necessary evil or as just a part of the way things are. Well, Gregory of Nyssa, he looked at the passage in Genesis chapter 1 of the Bible. It says that humanity is created in the image of God, and that led him to strongly object to slavery. He writes this in one of his sermons. He includes some names of currency here. You're not going to recognize them, but that's what he's talking about, is prices that you'd pay. He says, how many obols? What's the fair price? He says, how many obols did you pay fair price for the image of God? For how many staters, again, a currency, have you sold the nature specifically formed by God? God said, let us make humans in our image and likeness. Who can buy or sell a person when he's made in the image of God? So when you ask the question, why not be a racist or why not sell humans as though they're just chattel? Here's why. God says that's evil. God says each person is made in his image and has infinite dignity and worth. So when we cross that line of dehumanizing someone else, we cross God. There is a real standard as a Christian person that I can point to and say, this is why I can work for human rights in the world. Martin Luther King Jr., you think of him as a civil rights activist, and he was, but maybe you didn't know that he was a Baptist pastor. That's what his job was. He was was a preacher. That's what he did. And in his I Have a Dream speech, when he's making the case in a very public platform about why all people in America should be seen as equal and be able to vote and like play together and that segregation is wrong, he's appealing to the texts of Scripture that say that all people should be treated with justice and truth. So the Christian view is that there is a givenness to the world. God's definition of what life is all about, it has a bearing on us. And actually, thoughtful people, they know this. Uh, Aldous Huxley, writing in 1939, he describes his motivation for not believing in God. Look, this is really interesting. Why not believe in God? Here's why. He adopts the philosophy of the meaninglessness of life to say that there is no author, so there can be no meaning. He writes, for myself... The philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument for liberation, politically and sexually. So why doesn't he want to believe in God? Because he knows if there's an author that gives meaning to life, that author becomes the authority for how life is to be lived. In order for me to be free to believe what I want to politically or practice what I want to sexually, I have to adopt the view that there's no author, that life is meaningless. Otherwise, he will direct my life. It was his desire. 
That's why he wanted to get God out of the picture for his life. Maybe at this point, uh, we just need to kind of pause and, and, and think just about our own lives for a moment. Maybe just ask yourself something like, if, if God designed life to work best in a, in a certain way, like, would you want to know what that way is? And, and wouldn't it make best sense to let God be our loving leader? Here's what Jesus claims about himself. He says this, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is claiming that life in him or under his direction by his loving leadership is the best, fullest life possible. Jesus is in to freedom. He is in to life. He wants to give you life if you don't know it yet. Let's look closer at this idea of freedom, though. Um, Again, Tim Keller offers a realistic and helpful definition. He says, freedom isn't having no restrictions, but having the right restrictions. It's not doing what we most want to do, but knowing which of the things we most want to do is most lined up with what we're designed for, what will ultimately be freeing. So imagine you're a 60-some-odd-year granddad, okay? And you go into the doctor for your checkup, and you know you've got heart things. You know that. But the doctor says this. He says, you either change your eating habits, or this is going to kill you soon. Now you have a question. Do you go on continuing to eat the food that you love so much and that's been bringing you comfort for most of your life? Or will you make the choice that your diet has to go so that you'll have t- more time to be a, grandpa- a granddad to your kids, to your grandkids? The view of freedom that says, now I'm free to do whatever I want whenever I want to do it. Boy, that is far too naive about the complexities of the human heart, isn't it? You see, in this case, you'll have to restrict or limit your freedom in one way, say your diet, in order to be free to have more years with your grandkids. Or vice versa, you could choose to eat whatever you want, but you're then choosing against being a granddad for a a longer time. Or another example, if you want to be a high-performance athlete, you'll need to impose a whole variety of restrictions on your life, your time. Boy, you are going to be spending a lot of time, if you're a swimmer, at the pool, at the gym. Your diet is going to be on fierce restriction if you want to perform as a high-level athlete. If you want freedom to do that, you're going to have to limit your freedom in a whole lot of other ways. Now, some of you might object and say, well, no, I'm still the one who's calling the shots. I'm the one who decides on what I do or don't do. Say, maybe, but here would be my thought. Um, We like to think of ourselves as islands. I do what I want in that kind of sense. But here'd be my thought. If you want to be in any kind of meaningful relationship, you know that you need to put limits down. Marriage, for example. Saying yes to a life of getting to know one person deeply, of experiencing the joy of walking alongside and partnering with another uh, person, that will mean restricting myself to having no other romantic bonds. Only then, When I restrict my freedom in one sense, will I be free to enjoy the deep, joyful, lifelong relationship that a marriage can be? Or for those with parents, uh, or those who are going to be parents, the freedom to be a parent 
comes with the great responsibility to care for our children. And yes, that is Connor. And that's an awesome, yeah. That's at one and a half years old. Anyways, proud dad moment. Anyway, uh, I'm, I'm off my notes. I'm like, oh, he is cute. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Aw, that was a great day. Beautiful. Anyways, where was I? Parents. To parent children is to lose your freedom in many other ways. But it releases you to be free to be a parent. So the way I'm describing freedom here has this positive bent to it. I hope you can see that. See, our culture tends to describe freedom in almost purely negative ways. And what I mean is this. Freedom goes in two directions. There's freedom from, from limitations, from restriction. That's how our culture defines freedom. But freedom to become and do other things is another part. That's positive freedom. But if we begin with the notion that there is no author to life, that there is no ultimate truth, then it makes sense that there's actually no actual purpose or direction to life. That's what Aldous Huxley was arguing for. He says if we adopt the view of meaninglessness, then we can, at least in theory, be marginally free of constraints in terms of morality. But here's what you have to give up. Any real purpose. Your life is actually meaningless. Terry Eagleton, he says it like this. When looking at that issue, he says, it's hard to see that we can really speak of freedom at all here. Any more than a particle of dust dancing in the sunlight is free. Sure, it's free for nothing to not do anything, right? It's free, but it's got no purpose. Keller goes on to make this point. Freedom cannot be the highest or only value. We must use our freedom of choice to do something. But our culture is morally afraid of saying what that should be or where we should land. Why? Because we fear that if we tell people, you ought to be doing this, that curtails people's freedom. So we just drift like a particle of dust in the sunlight. No purpose, no meaning. My question is, does that actually make sense? Is that what your life is for? Keller goes on to say this next. Freedom is only good if it enables you to actually do something good. Negative freedom is an unresolved chord, an incomplete story. We aren't fully free if we refuse to commit ourselves in order to do something positive. So here's where the beautiful, liberating message of Christianity comes in. Jesus says that we do have a purpose because we do have an author. So Christianity, it turns out, gives us a realistic, positive vision of freedom. Paul was an early church um, leader, and he's writing to a group of Christians in in the area of Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. Here's what he says to them, and I'm going to blow my nose right before I read this, okay? This is going to be gross. Maybe you should mute my mic. I don't know. Maybe you actually should. Yeah. Okay, I'm good. Big bottle of sanitizer on this thing afterwards. All right. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Look at that. Christianity, positive vision of freedom. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. What he means by that is this, your self-centered nature. 
You're wanting to do things just for your own benefit. Your, your egocentric way of living in the past, he said, don't, don't do that anymore. What? No. Don't indulge your, the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Do you see how that's a positive view of freedom? We're set free not to become self-centered again, to quote-unquote free spirits. We're set free with a purpose, and that's to serve one another humbly in love. Yes, that will limit your negative freedom. It will. You will take on responsibility to actually love others. That'll have a bearing on your time, your energy, your emotional energy. It'll have a bearing on that, yes, but it's truly liberating in that you become the person you were created to be. You are made to be a lover. That's what you're made for. And we get to be. Christ frees us to live as a lover. My question to you is this. Do you want that? Do you want to be a person who loves others deeply, truly, from the heart, humbly? Is that who you want to be? That's who you're made to be. Paul begins with this word. You are called to be free. And here's a huge point that we have to get this morning. Whether you know it or not, whether we know it or not, we are all living in an often hidden slavery. What does that mean? Let me explain. Uh, I started this whole series with a quote from a guy named David Foster Wallace. Uh, he's an American novelist. Um, he's passed away now. But he gave a speech called This is Water. And one of the main things that he points out is that Everybody is living for something. We are making something or someone our greatest good, the ultimate place where we tap our meaning in life. Something that's our main thing. Here's what he writes. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we have is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Now, maybe you're thinking, what does that mean? <laughs> Listen to what he says next. If you worship money and things, if that is where you tap your real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, and they will, by the way, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need even more of it over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Wow, th this is an incredible admission for somebody who's not a Christian. Someone say, I don't really know what's going on in the spiritual realm, but I do know this. Everybody is worshiping something all the time. He's right. What we love most, what we look to to say, that's what fills me up, is our ultimate. That is the thing that you are serving right now. Then he goes on to say what we need to hear this morning so desperately. He said, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. We are worshiping things and we don't even know it. So he's calling us. He's begging us to become aware of the fact that something is your ultimate. 
you are serving that thing. You think you're free, is what he's saying, but you're not. Not ultimately. Something is your highest good. In his journal, the fourth century pastor, Augustine of Hippo, he talks about his own slavery. You see, as a young man, he was looking to fill this like, oh, what, what is wrong with me? Why can't I feel full? Why do I, where's my desire leading? And so he, he's going all kinds of crazy places sexually. Uh, he's looking to philosophy. Maybe if I can fill my brain, I can kind of master this whole thing and that'll fill me up. All kinds of like spiritualities that he's embracing and trying on. And he says, none of it worked until he found Jesus. This is what he writes in his prayer journal. He says, God, you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We will keep striving and seeking and looking for meaning in all kinds of places until we ultimately find our rest in God. That's what he's saying. The one who made us for for himself. Everyone worships. We do. We really do. The question is, Does the thing you worship lead you to real freedom? And here's what the Christian faith says. Unless that one thing that is ultimate in your life is God, you will never actually be free. So we actually need to be freed from those other things. And that's what Paul is talking about at the beginning. You were called to be free. So how do we get back on track? How do we move into that real freedom Like, do we have to follow a set of rules and hope that we did it good enough to rule out all the bad things that we've done? Well, here's the good news. The good news is no. (laughs) And it's really, really good news. Rules, it turns out, aren't the center of the Christian faith. Jesus is. Jesus is the true liberator. You see, in many traditional religions, and actually in kind of the popular just thought of our day at this moment, It kind of goes like this. People are accepted if they obey God and keep the rules. But Christianity is exactly the opposite of that. Christians Christians don't obey God in order to be accepted by him. But instead, we trust in Jesus. That what he accomplished on the cross was sufficient. When he died, he died to take my sins and yours. When he rose again, he was demonstrating that it really was real. It was true. We could trust in it. So Christians don't obey God to be accepted by him. We obey God because we are already accepted by him. He forgives our sins. He makes us his children. That's how we're freed. We obey God then not to be accepted, but because through Jesus we're already accepted. Obedience to God then is is not duty. It, It becomes delight. Listen to what Jesus himself says in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Then Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now, a yoke is talking about what yokes an ox in there. It's, a, it's, a, it's another way of saying my way of doing life. Take my yoke, my way of doing life upon you. Let me teach you. Because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, my way of life, is easy to bear, and the burden that I give is light. Wallace, remember, he has said that whatever we make into our ultimate will ultimately become our burden. 
It's the thing we're tapping into to get meaning in life. It might be by gaining more stuff or seeking more status or being seen as beautiful or powerful. He says it'll eat you alive. It will crush you. It's a burden you can't bear. Notice what Jesus says. Come to me. Come to me, you who have burdened yourselves with trying to make a name for yourself, with putting on a way of life that's not ultimately going to lead you to freedom. Come to me. Notice he doesn't say, come to a set of rules. Come here. Come and follow these rules. No. He doesn't say, come to a religious or philosophical viewpoint. No, he doesn't. That's not it. He says, come to me, to a person. Come to me. And the person he's inviting you to loved you so desperately he let his life break apart so you could be renewed. It is not crushing to wear Jesus' yoke because Jesus' yoke is this, you are loved. You're made worthy by what I accomplished on the cross. Now come and let my way of life and that way of loving others, let that become your way. Let me teach you how to do it. I'll walk next to you. Do you see how personal that is? I will walk next to you and teach you how to do it. You're not on your own. It's not, here's a set of rules. Let's see if you can follow them. It's walk next to me and I'll teach you all about real life, full life. Do you want that? Do you want to know that kind of life? Me too. And I have to say, when I was a young man in university, um, I knew Jesus. I'd walked with him in my life. But I think I was still trying to make a name for myself. And there was this moment where I just invited God to be first. And he began to heal me. And I began to recognize how many other things I had burdened myself with. Boy, did I want the approval of others. Oh, man. And when I didn't get it, it hurt like crazy. And then Jesus came in and said, let me love you. I'm the one who did it all for you. Let me tell you, I don't want to ever go back to a way of life that doesn't have his love at the center of it. That is ultimately freeing. And this is important. This is what I mentioned at the beginning. Do truth claims lead to oppression of others? Are all truth claims power plays? I said no, and here's why. Listen, when Jesus says, take my yoke on you, the way that Christians are to live out the truth claim of the gospel. The good news of Jesus is not oppressive because what is it? The way that I loved you, that's how you're now to love the rest of the world. Laying down your life in humility and gentleness and care for their benefit, not for yours. Follow me. The way of cross-bearing discipleship is completely unoppressive to our world because it's a way that says, I'm here to serve you humbly, truthfully. And that is a truth claim that doesn't lead at all to oppression, but to life. It's not life sucking, but life giving. In the end, the Christian faith, as I'm trying to say, is not about rules. It's about relating to Jesus, letting him guide us into the life of real freedom to be and do what we were designed for. And as I've tried to say, that's to be a lover. Think of it in, in, in these terms, and this is just where I'm going to end here. You know, when, when my wife and I got married, we stood on a stage and we made a covenant with each other. These are called vows, okay? Those are the sort of, you might say, the terms of our, 
relationship. Now, what are they there for? You say these are, these are the rules of our relationship, and, and they are. We, we promise to be faithful to each other, exclusive. No other romantic bombs would be formed with anyone else for our whole lives. That we would walk side by side for the rest of life together in the good and the bad, that we would love, honor, respect each other. That's how we were going to live in this relationship. Now, you might say those are the rules. Okay, but the vows we made to each other, they matter because they hold us in those times where we're tempted to be self-centered instead of loving. Okay, they bring us back to what our marriage is really meant to be. So, by the way, we don't have a copy of our vows on the fridge where I sit there and be like, did I tick that off today? How about that one there? That one? Our, Our relationship is not about our vows, okay? Our vows are about keeping our relationship. I want you to see that that is what it's like when God said, here's how I made life to work best, that's how it goes. Our vows hold us when we, yeah, when we want to be self-centered instead of self-giving. They hold us when we might be tempted to think the grass might be greener somewhere else. These vows aren't there to ruin our fun, but to free us. To free us for a life of rich, deep relationship. They limit us to this exclusive relationship in order for that relationship to flourish. And this is how God's ways, his rules for humanity, that's how they operate as well. So the question now comes to each of us as we close. Will you come to the one who is ultimately freeing? Will you drop the need to create an identity for yourself and let your loving leader, Jesus, set you on the path that you were made for? Let's pray. I invite the worship team to come forward. God, I want to... Thank you so much for the reality that you are the author and designer of life and of each of us in this room, that you know how life works best and you're calling us, you desire for us to live life to the full. I thank you so much for that, Jesus, that that is your design and desire. I want to pray for those, God, right now who are considering the Christian faith or maybe have walked with you for a time but have said, I don't really know about this anymore. God, I want to ask that everything, every one of these words of yours, Jesus, that we read today, that you would speak those deep to their hearts. That your invitation to come to me, Jesus, that that would be heard. Maybe for the first time there's someone here and, and, and for you, um, maybe you've seen Christianity as some sort of like religious set of rules and not a relationship with Jesus. And so maybe you need to pray something like this today and you're ready to. Maybe you need to pray something like, God, I thank you that you made me for yourself and I I have been restlessly searching for other things to tap my meaning in life. Thank you for the invitation to come home to you. God, I recognize that my self-centeredness has been crippling. It's been an affront to you. It's broken my relationships down with other people and I'm ready to confess that it is sin and it's wrong and I need your forgiveness. And God, I humbly receive and accept what your son Jesus has done for me on the cross and his resurrection. And I want to live for you. I want to be free. God, free me. And man, if you prayed something like that today for the first time or maybe for the 18th time, but you meant it, we would love to know. Just come and talk to me or one of the staff after. We just want to pray with you. And God, for the rest of us who are hearing this again, may we be again 
reminded and encouraged of the amazing reality that we have a loving leader who's designed life to work in a way that's freeing ultimately. Lord, release us, liberate us to live out your design for us this week. Amen.